You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 45. It's nice to have your company as I continue on my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. If you're a regular listener to the show, you'll have noticed that it's been a few weeks since the last episode went live. I have no excuse, I'm afraid. Just like so many of you, I've been super busy. Being super busy, of course, is a good thing. It means that business is good and family life is full and active, but it hasn't been good for getting out a podcast. But here we are again, and I promise I'll have a few more episodes heading your way before having a little break over the Christmas period. My guest in this episode of the podcast is Steve Simpson. Steve is an expert in organizational culture, and he joined me to talk us through his incredible formula for understanding and impacting the things that really make your place tick. I describe his formula as incredible because it is both powerful and simple. Getting to the bottom of the real rules that drive behavior within an organization is fundamental to the work of any leader, but it's much easier said than done. So that's where Steve and his UGRs come in. Unwritten ground rules, UGRs, the rules that everyone in an organization knows and lives by, but rarely talks about. We know they exist. The question is, how to find out what they really are, the impact they really have. How can we possibly imagine in an effective way what they need for us to be successful? And finally, obviously, what can we do to shape them, to change them in an enduring and authentic way? I hope you enjoy my conversation with Steve Simpson. Steve Simpson, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thanks, Dave. Great to be with you. Hey, Steve. I feel really lucky to have you with me, mate. I've had a quick look at you on the internet, of course, and you are an actual, real, renowned international speaker. (laughs) Uh, Oh, thank you. I get the chance to work in Australia and elsewhere on occasions and uh, in various different industries, which um, makes my job pretty fascinating, Dave. You do get around, and and there's all sorts of fantastic photos of you on your website doing speaking to huge audiences, so uh, I hope we can do you justice here on the Team Guru podcast, Steve. (laughs) It's good to be one-on-one for a change, (laughs) with no one listening, of course. (laughs) Oh, lots of people listening, mate, but just not right now. We'll we'll throw this episode out pretty soon, actually. Now, Steve, as you know, we, we spoke before we came on air. I've just recently read your book and absolutely loved it. I get a lot of books come my way through the podcast and I I, I choose the good ones, but yours was just fantastic. I I think it is the best culture book, organizational culture book, either since The Fish Omnibus, which was a huge success, or it might even be better than The Fish Omnibus. It really is fantastic, mate. That's very kind of you, Dave. I really appreciate that. Thank you. 
So the book is called A Culture Turned, and I love the way you've written it. It's in the fable style, and there's a number of really powerful business books that have been written in the fable style. A couple of my favorites are The uh, the Leader Who Had No Title by Robin Sharma, who also wrote The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, a, again, a, a fable. The Fish Omnibus, of course, is a little bit of a fable, and Patrick Lencioni likes to write his fables as well. He wrote, of course, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team in a Fable. How did you decide that you would write this one in that fable style? Well, we took the lead from other successful books and, you know, Who Moved My Cheese and uh, My Iceberg is Melting or other examples. And I just, we wanted to get away from the the dry academic feel that uh, many business books have. Mm. And we also want to get away from the predictability that many business books have. Yeah. You know, they seem to follow a, a certain formula. So we thought, well, why don't we, and I've, I've got a co-author, my great friend and business partner, Steph Duplessis, who's an equal contributor to the book, of course. So we thought we've been working in the culture space for more than 20 years in you know, a range of different industries, of, in, in a range of different organizational sizes. And we thought, why can't we lean on the experiences that we've gained, specific examples from the experiences that we've gained, and throw them into a mix. We're telling a fable, telling a story about a so-called fictional business, but it's actually not fictional, Dave. It actually draws real examples from the experiences that we've had over the past 20 to 25 years. Have you got some clients reading this book thinking, oh my goodness, that's me? Hopefully not. Hopefully the client, those clients aren't reading the book. <laughs> well, why would they need to, mate? They've had you come and do the work for them. Well, exactly. That's a better answer. <laughs> so the, the way it's written, and I, and I, you know, I guess to choose the fable style, it's a bit of an all or nothing strategy, isn't it? Because it will either be fantastic and the reader will be really engaged with the storyline and then through the quality storyline, pick up the principles that you're sharing or you'll crash and burn because you don't get the story part of it right. Well, exactly. And I didn't go into this 100% confident. Yeah. I wondered whether combining the two, a fable and a story about culture change, would mm. work. Mm. And that's why, frankly, I'm delighted to hear your feedback, Dave. I, I really am. So well, thank you. Well, no, thank you, mate. It, was, it is a good book. And I'm a huge reader. So, so that comes from someone who is fairly critical of books. I always have two books on the run. My listeners have heard me say before, I always have a, a business book, uh, something I'm learning from, and I have a novel always going at night. So I felt with yours as though I was getting a bit of the, the best of both worlds. I was, I was reading <laughs> oh, a novel you. along the way. So the way you've set it up, Steve, for our listeners' sake, is that you have created a fictional company, the very important company, and they're going through an enormous crisis. The, the co-founder, and you've, you've come up with a lot of very clever names for your characters, Bruce Bottomline, is at his wit's end, ready to leave the business because his, his fellow co-founder, Helen Hardcharger, is essentially ground zero for this toxic culture that's developed through the organization. And, and as all organizations, no matter how successful they've been in the past, if a toxic culture takes hold, it can put everything at risk. And, and that's what the very important corporation is facing. They're, they're facing an existential threat. And you come in with your model and run them through the process that you presumably take your clients through in the real world. And as I say, you tell it in the story format. And just before I, uh, we get into the guts of what it's all about, I love that 
that sh- Sam Sherlock character, the all-knowing, <laughs> benevolent management consultant. This guy has made so much money through his career. He's a bit like the barrister in the uh, in that famous Australian movie. What's that one? You know, tell them they're dreaming. What's that famous Australian movie? Yeah, I can't help you out there, Dave. Can't, can't help me. <laughs> he's a bit like a character whose name I can't remember in that he's he's made so much money through his career, all he does is get around the place helping people for free. But they've got to <laughs> buy in. It's just perfect, mate. It's a great story. I Thank really you. enjoyed it. So tell Thank me, you. it's based on UGR's unwritten ground rules. How did you come up with this as a concept? Because I have to say, it really works. Well, thank you again. And it's a concept I created more than 25 years ago, to be honest. At the time, I'd had a teaching career, not a very long one. After about four years of teaching, I went to uh, Canada in nine, way back in 1982. So I'm starting to age myself mm, here. Yep, great uh, two uh, I was went- that year, Steve, just to, just to <laughs> make you feel young and fresh. Uh, yes, well, I'll move on. <laughs> um, I went to Canada in 82, did a master's degree, came back and went into uh, head office of the education department in Western Australia. So I was in um, my mid to late 20s, never been in the um, public service before a large organisation. I was feeling pretty bulletproof. I was uh, in a part of the of the department called the Teacher Development Branch. During that time, I was invited to run a series of half-day workshops for school leadership teams from schools within a particular region near Perth. And because I was fairly bulletproof, I didn't even look at the topics. I said, yes, I can do that without a problem. And the second or third of these half-day workshops was dedicated to culture. And I thought, well, that's not a problem as it's time to come up for me to do this. I'll Google it. I thought that's not, uh, you know, well, Google wasn't around (laughs) then, but I, the next best thing were my um, books that I'd studied for my master's degree in Canada. So I went back to these books and um, looked at definitions of culture and how it was applied and and so on via the books and just shook my head, Dave. I I couldn't, in all honesty, present this back to an audience. It was so academic, so theoretical, almost philosophical in some cases. And I thought, this just isn't me. I'm not going to throw this back at people. So I don't know how I did it, but I came up with the concept of UGRs, Unwritten Grand Rules, and reflected on the time I'd had as a teacher and the Unwritten Grand Rules that I'd encountered as a teacher. And as soon as I presented this to this audience of school leadership teams, and I I mean, this to a a young bloke in his mid to late 20s was a pretty daunting experience presenting to principals and deputy principals. At the time, I knew I was onto something because I almost got a physical, well, not almost, I got a physical reaction. Some people literally leant forward, eagerly exploring this, and others almost literally turned their back. It was just too confronting for Mm. them. So obviously doing it for the first time, I presented it in a fairly rudimentary way. But without wishing to sound arrogant, at the time, I actually thought I'm really onto something here because um, this was stuff that hadn't normally been talked about and certainly from what I'd read, hadn't been written about. So that was 25 years ago and we've developed it to the point where We've uh, written the book that you've just read, Dave. Well, you you and I have something in common, mate. I started my career as a school teacher. I was a high school English teacher. I outlasted you by a few years. I think I spent about 12 years in the classroom. And as anyone who's worked in a school knows, a, a school anywhere in the world, they're, they're a really rich cultural organization, schools. They can be a very strange and wonderful and awful place all at the same time. I can imagine 
so many of the schools that I've worked at, if you had have stood in front of them and presented to them the idea of unwritten ground rules, you would have got exactly that reaction. Some mm. people in the room leaning forward going, oh my goodness, he is onto something. And other people recoil in their seat thinking, oh my goodness, he's onto something. He, he's found us out. What a great experience. And the thing that blows me away about that story, Steve, is that you came up with it at your first shot. You did a little bit of research because you had boldly put your hand up to present something you'd never even looked into before and rejected what you read, where a lot of people would have just gone with the common wisdom or the, the consensus wisdom. You said, nah, this is dry. This is impractical. It's not going to work. And you created your own formula that now a number of decades later, you have fine tuned into this fabulous piece of work. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I think, you know, to be honest, Dave, I think too many people who do what I do just regurgitate what's already out there. And mm. I think, you know, there's there's a message for all of us in that we should be exploring new territory and framing things differently and trying to think about things a bit differently, just rather than accepting the convention and the conventional wisdom, you know, because, um, yeah, well, it, it's been a fascinating journey for me and, and Steph, my business partner, and I can in all honesty say that I, whenever I present in whatever context, there has never been one threat of an issue about me regurgitating other people's stuff. Yeah. Because it, it's we've done our own research around our own concept and um, it is completely, in fact, it's quite the reverse, Dave. Uh, in fact, I sent a letter off. Here's an interesting circular thing for us, Dave. I sent a letter, an email off only a couple of weeks ago to a school principal who had word for word stolen my material and put it into the school newsletter. I kid you not. And you, so it's the you, reverse. And you wrote, did you, are you saying you wrote a letter to him to call him out on that? It's plagiarism. It's called plagiarism. Yes. And I emailed this gentleman and said, and said, look, I have no problem. In fact, I encourage people using our staff, but this is a school principal at a PhD and uh, I reflected with him that it, he should have known better. Mm. And uh, so it, it's a little bit reverse. We need to keep our eyes out for, um, people who are stealing our material, people you know, without, without reference. And I don't want to put this in the wrong context because I'm more than happy. I promote people using our stuff, but just to pro providing appropriate references and citations where that's appropriate. Well, mate, there's no doubt you're in danger of people using your stuff because it is just so clear and the process that you go through is is so practical and you can see that it works. All right, we've teased the listeners long enough. We've talked about <laughs> unwritten ground rules, UGRs, Tell us what they are and why they are so important to organizational culture. Okay. The core to this is understanding the definition of UGRs. I define UGRs or unwritten ground rules as people's perceptions of this is the way we do things around here. People's perceptions of this is the way we do things around here. Now, that's worth remembering because there are a couple of key elements in that definition. But by way of example, I can give you some UGRs or unwritten ground rules that I've come across in the workplace, and they include UGRs like uh, at our meetings, it isn't worth complaining because we know nothing will get done. Mm -hmm. The only time anyone gets spoken to by the boss is when something is wrong. The organization talks about the importance of service, but we know they don't really mean it, so we don't really have to worry about it, and so on. The incredible thing, the remarkable thing about UGRs is that they drive people's behavior yet they are seldom talked about openly. It's almost like there's a parallel universe, Dave. We all know they're there. In fact, when I present to an audience, uh, I've, I've presented to a, 
a senior leadership team of 40 people of a large organization only two days ago. And I shared with them my view about my theory about people new to a position in an organization. So somebody comes in from outside and I said to them, give me your feedback, please, because I think my theory is pretty close to a 100% rule. This is it. A person who is new to a job is quieter than they otherwise would be. And this doesn't matter how senior they are. It applies equally to all levels of seniority. So when I seek feedback, most people say, absolutely, that's true. And then I'll say, why? Why are people quieter? And when we did this a couple of days ago, the senior leader said, well, they're looking for how the lay of the land. They're trying to find out how things operate. They're trying to find out the way things are done and all this sort of stuff. So what I say to that is, so to paraphrase what you're saying, we stay quieter to check out what the UGRs are. We're looking now, to we find the them term, out, aren't we? We're working out we, the we, UGRs. It comes intuitively to us. We yeah. don't have the term UGRs in our heads, but it's a function of being human beings. This is what we do, and it's not confined to workplaces either. It's a function of us being in a new group of people in whatever context, whether it's a sporting context, a church or religious context, whatever new group we're in, we'll stay quieter. Why do we stay quieter? We stay quieter in order for us to conform. Don't conform at your peril. That's the power of UGRs. They drive people's behavior, yet they are seldom talked about openly. And I learned through your book that as we're coming into a new organization and we might get that formal onboarding process where they tell us what the written rules are, the, the rules that are in the book, and then we're naturally looking for the UGRs, what people are really doing is they're watching for three things. They're watching for what gets noticed, what doesn't get noticed, and they're watching to see if what managers say actually matches up with what they do. 100%. Ah, 100%. I can read. You can... <laughs> Very well. Pass the reading test. (laughs) You have read the book. Um, (laughs) At our induction or orientation, if we're lucky enough to get one, we get told this is the way we do things around here. And then we go and find out the truth. And we find out by deduction. We will look for certain cues and clues to deduce the UGRs. By the way, some people will say to me, Steve, the best tip you can give a new person is for them to go to the to the opinion leaders within an organization and ask them. Mm. Well, I'll say, well, that's maybe a good idea, but maybe not as well, because I've learned through my experience, and this isn't always the case, but I've learned through my experience that often the new person to a team has to prove their worth before they're let in on the real UGRs. Mm-hmm. I can remember this when I went into the education department in Western Australia. I knew at the time I was being, there was a barrier to me being trusted within an in-group for me to be let in on the real UGRs. So I had to first prove my worth before I was allowed in to that team and their inner workings. But nothing's Um, stopping you from noticing them though, right? They might not share them with you and, and let them in on their secrets, but as a new person, even before you've earned that trust, you're already looking around and noticing those three things that I scoped out before. Absolutely. And you're right, Dave, but I guess I was trying to say that sometimes by asking, even if you get the right opinion leaders, asking them in the early days can be absolutely fruitless because you are still yet to prove your worth. Yeah. They're not so going to come things. clean with you, are they? They're not. They're not going to come clean with you in some organizations. Mm. So you look at other things. And we, there's no manual for us to say this is what we need to do. We work this out. 
In fact, I worked this out changing primary schools in year three. Right. I changed primary schools and I learned quickly in my new primary school never to say, never to preface any suggestion with the words back in my old school <laughs> because I knew I knew the shutters went down as soon as I said that. Yeah, yeah. So we deduce this. We learn this intuitively as human beings. And this is it's seldom verbalized, but a new person will look at how bosses treat staff. What is said about a boss when they're there? What do they say when the boss walks away? They'll look at things like punctuality. Does a nine o'clock start mean the people arrive at the death knock? Are they looking at the second hand of their watch ready to sprint once it's finished time? They'll look at how customers are treated. What is said about a customer after the phone has been put down? They'll look at attention to detail. Do people see things through or is near enough, good enough? They'll look at this this raft of things, which, as I say, are seldom articulated, but we know intuitively that these are the things that we look for, and then increasingly we learn the barriers and the confines in which we can work, and then we get more comfortable about being ourselves, but sometimes modifying our personality to conform to the UTRs of the organization. You've said a number of really interesting things there. You're changing schools at grade three. It's so interesting to think that even at that young age, at the age of seven or eight years old, you know to look around for the UGRs of your new environment. And you learned at such a young age that you should never start a sentence with, back in my old school. It's funny you say that. I was talking to a contractor in a, with a client that I'm working with at the moment, and he was saying that one thing he's learned as a contractor is you don't go around in new projects saying, back was when I was in Suncorp or back when I was working in the IBM. Yes. <laughs> and so people are yeah. still learning that through their 30s and 40s. That's a, <laughs> a great parallel. And, you know, these UGRs exist on so many levels, don't they? You and I run workshops and facilitated sessions all year long. And I know, as you would, if you're running a two or a three-day session, what you do on that first break really matters. If you say, yeah. okay, we're having a 15-minute break, we'll be back at 10 o'clock, and you let it roll on until 5 past 10, 7 past 10, before you start getting people together, by the second or third day, people are just taking license to come back from breaks whenever they want. They've understood the unwritten ground rules of a session facilitated by Steve Simpson or David Frizzell. 100%. And uh, during a longer session, I will say later in the day, I will make an observation because sometimes, as you'd know, people are quieter at the beginning of a day than they are by the end of the day. Mm. Because there are UGRs at play, and I will sometimes, towards the middle or after lunch, uh, if we've got a full day session, I will say to people, here's an observation. If I have asked you a question, because I, I really try and encourage people to participate in the sessions that I uh, run, probably the same as you, Dave, and I will say to people, if I've asked you a question and you've wanted to say something and you chose not to say anything, there is a good chance a UGR was causing you to do that. So this happens in the workplace. Like, I think meetings are great litmus tests mm. for the UGRs of a team or an organization. So I'd particularly, if I was a new person, want to have a look at how meetings run. And if meetings run, if they do run, do bosses continually find reasons not to be able to make the meetings? Is a meeting one-way information dissemination or do people actively contribute? Is a different point of view ever raised at a meeting? I'd particularly like to see what is said immediately after the meeting because we've all been on a meeting where the person who's running it will say something like, folks, I know this has been a tough decision, but really do appreciate your contribution. Are there any other questions or concerns that people have before we do finish up? No? Okay, thanks, folks. We'll see you, see you next week. People stand up, walk out into the corridor. That's when it starts. 
the huddle, the meeting mm. after the meeting. They were all tuning into these cues. We're all deducing what the UGRs are in order that we can conform. And if I get time and it's relevant later, I can demonstrate that UGRs can actually change our personalities. Even senior people, UGRs can change our personalities. They're that strong. I bet they can. And I bet as we're talking through this definition of UGRs, and I love the way that you begin the sentence, just to make it really clear and easy to understand, around here we... We don't bother speaking up in meetings because it doesn't matter. We don't go looking for information when we've got a problem to solve because we'll be blamed for the problem. All those things, they all start with around here we. And if you're listening to this right now, you are already without, you can't stop yourself thinking about the UGRs that exist in your workplace or in your community group or wherever it is that that you spend time. They exist and, and until you come across this concept specifically or explicitly like we are, you just don't articulate them to yourself. Yes, it normally happens at an unconscious level. And, that, mm. and that's a good reinforcement there, Dave, that UGRs normally begin with the words around here. And uh, when I'm working with leaders, I will say, because there is an art to crafting the language of UGRs. And typically, the more senior a person is, the more they tend to want to overcomplicate this. My advice is don't. The language of UGRs is very simple. It's the language of our thinking. It's a language of our very informal conversation. So, uh, for example, in some sessions that I run, I will show a um, real-life work video from a segment called Hotel Adelphia, BBC uh, production, in the same vein as um, as airport and customs, but they put a film crew in uh, this hotel in Liverpool called right. Hotel Adelphia. I think I've and, stumbled across that show, actually. Yeah, it, it screened quite a few years back, but I use a short segment in, in it to show a leader who deals with staff concerns because the staff get together with some concerns and the leader deals with them by picking them off one-on-one and coming in hard on each of them, knowing that they don't have the confidence to speak one-on-one back at the leader. Mm. And she'll walk into a room and say, you know, so what's your problem? And the person will respond, well, nothing, you know, they, they clam up. So after showing that, I will say to people, what are the UGRs? And some senior people have difficulty in articulating it the way it should be articulated. Because I will often, well, sometimes people will say, maybe the UGR is around here, complain to the boss at your own peril. Mm. And I say, you've nailed it. That's the simplicity of UGR's language. It's the way that we think. It's the way that we converse very informally, but normally beginning with the words around here. I will say, often the word they is contained within UGRs. They, referencing leaders or another group, it's sort of absolving responsibility, they, over there. You Creating know. So an, an oppressor. Yes, yes. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organisation. Steve, let's talk about this. Communication, respect, integrity and excellence. What do they mean to you? Okay, so many organizations have values statements. Those four values, which you know, Dave, are included in the book, I will often reference when I'm presenting at a conference or in a workshop. And I will say, these are actual values from an organization, communication, respect, integrity, excellence. What do you think that organization would be like? People knowingly nod and say, oh, yeah, it's a good organization. Mm. Then I'll tell them they are the values of Enron, (laughs) once the seventh largest company in, in the world, 
and now one of the world's largest corporate collapses. Enron had those values. The CEO, Ken Lay, was found guilty of the lies, corruptions, and other scandals that took place in the company. In between him being found guilty and him being sentenced, he had a heart attack in prison and died. Jeffrey Skilling, the chief financial officer, is in prison right now as a result of the lies, corruptions, and other scandals that took place. Their values, communication, respect, integrity, excellence. What a load of rubbish. They just don't hold water, do they? Values can be words on a piece of paper, words on a wall. They can mean nothing when compared to the UGRs or the culture, because that's one and the same, same thing. UGRs are your culture. I had an incredible experience when I read those. First of all, just reading the four words and thinking to myself, my goodness, I think they are literally the four values of a number of clients that I have, exactly those mm. words. So then to see you use them in almost a mocking way in your book and then reference the fact that they're the values of Enron, I thought, geez, why do we bother? Why do organizations, every organization, even bother putting together a list of values and giving them to their staff and saying, okay, these are our values now? Yeah, well, I, look, I, and I think, Dave, I think it's very rare that they are not written with good intent. Of course. You know, the vast majority of cases, leadership teams craft these and often get staff involved in crafting their values and really have good intent behind it. So, you know, I'm not too cynical about the process. I think the fact is many people are searching for a way to help bring them to life and haven't come across a way to do that. And time can erode values as well. I mean, over time, they can lose their shine. A crisis or tough times can help them lose their shine. And we can lose sight of their real value. But here's another way of thinking about this as well. And I think this is a risk when it comes to culture and sometimes specifically with values, that some people, some, can I use the term, hard-nosed people, <laughs> think that values are the soft, flowery, lovey-dovey stuff mm. that we've all got to stand around in a circle and sing kumbaya at the end of the day. And I think there's a risk that, that there is not – and, and those people are actually saying, you haven't sold me on the value of values yet. There is, I don't see a business case for values yet. So I'm saying a couple of things here. I'm saying the erosion of time and pressure and lack of knowledge about how to bring these to life can hurt values. But the other thing is that also a lack of a business case for values can uh, help people quickly lose faith in their value and, not, and let them not worry about it. Have you ever seen an organization where they actually do live by the four values that have been emailed out to all staff? People have picked up and run with them. And if so, if you've seen that, what's the difference in that organization? What have they done differently? Oh, 100%. They're fewer on the ground, but Kmart's a great example. I've been working with Kmart over the last seven or eight years. It's been an absolute transformation of a business. If any if any people listening to this have not been into a Kmart store in Australia and New Zealand recently, go in. That's my advice because you will be gobsmacked by two things that are put together in Kmart, the terms that shouldn't go together. One is gobsmackingly low prices and the other is class. The way the stores are laid out, it is class. Now, that's underpinned, most importantly, by a wonderful culture, a transformation of a, of a culture which ought to be written about in business books because they used to have a very toxic culture. Guy Russo, the best leader I've ever met, took over the business about seven or eight years ago, loved my UGR's concept as it happens and 
used the UGR's concept to tra- help transform the culture. Lucky you, and, Steve. Um, well, yeah, it's been a wonderful association. I've just got, I've learned an immense amount from working with the wonderful people at Kmart. But there's a number of things that they've achieved, and one of them, which I think is a core key issue, and that is getting ownership of the culture across the business. I will often say to leaders that leaders can make a mistake when it comes to culture. The mistake, the flawed thinking is that culture is their sole responsibility. That is flawed thinking. In my view, culture is a primary responsibility, but not the sole responsibility of leaders. We need shared ownership. The counter to this is we can have staff, and we've seen and heard this, we can have staff literally pointing upwards and saying, if only they'd fix things mm. up, we'd be okay. Yeah. Now that's, you know, that might be partly true, but it's also, and it's also absolving themselves of any responsibility. So Kmart have been able to transform the business in a number of respects. One being culture, where they've got people genuinely owning the culture and having immense pride in saying, "I work for Kmart." And once you got to that point, it's try and stop it. It's just, you know, a magnificent point to be. You said when you started working with Kmart, they had a toxic culture. We've heard the term toxic culture. What was really happening? What does that mean in a practical sense? Well, you think about the bad things that you've encountered or heard of in businesses. And I I could probably say yes to that with Kmart. Stores would bring into the, the head office as it was then known. It's now called a support office. Stores would ring in the head office and the, the phones would ring out. There was internal warfare. There was sniping. There was backstabbing. You name all the nasty things you could think of and you could tick it off for Kmart. It was a toxic culture and um, it's been transformed. What are their UGRs now? Around here, well, we... Well, they've linked them to their values. Mm-hmm. And um, this is part of the process, as you know, David, part of our five-step process where during the process, we get people to help bring the cultures to life by thinking about the kinds of UTRs that would be in place if that particular value was alive and well. So for example, if we have a value of teamwork, what's a possible range of UTRs that could be in place that would demonstrate that teamwork was in place? And I get people to frame it around here and to say it as though it already exists. That's what we call positive UGRs, which are aspirational UGRs, UGRs we're fighting for. Now, part of the value of this is that it gets people talking about the culture. Most people don't get that opportunity. But the other thing is it helps bring values to life. Often values are motherhoodish statements, which people have difficulty in connecting with. The language of UGRs helps create a bridge of understanding for people where they actually get how their behavior connects with that particular value. I was in a Kmart store recently, and there's a plastic barn door type thing going from the store into the staff area, the back of the store. And the door had been left open. So I could look down a long passageway to a T-intersection, staff only. And on the wall that I could see facing me at the end of the hallway was their poster with their values and underneath each value were written the words around here with their positive UGRs. Oh, did you burst so, with pride when you saw that? Well, I took a photo, but, but <laughs> you know, I, I've known these are around, but I mean, yeah. it just reminded me that having this stuff visible and I can get, this is, I think, step four of our process, have, or three or four of our process. Having this stuff visible is necessary, but it's not sufficient. There's some other stuff we need to do, but, the wording of positive UGRs and having this stuff visible is a necessary element of 
helping transform the culture. All right, Steve, we have sold the idea of UGRs really well. We've got some listeners sitting there thinking, oh, I want some of that. I want to know what those unwritten ground rules are in my organization. But most of all, I want to know what they should be. And I want to know what I can do about it. So let's talk them through the process that you go through when you run your workshops, when you worked with Kmart and brought them from a toxic culture which I'm assuming is the same process that you worked through in your fable in your book, where you took the very important corporation with the help from Sam Sherlock and Bruce Bottomline, worked with this toxic organization and, and turned it right around and, and made everyone fall in love with the work they did again. What are the steps? Okay, so our first step is a five-step process. Our first step says, in fact, let's forget about UGRs. Our first step is called Envision. And for this step, we ask what I think is and I don't want to sound arrogant, but I think this is a golden question. The question is this, what are the key cultural attributes we need in place to ensure our future success and to make this a great place to work? Put more simply, the question is this, what does our culture need to look and feel like for us to truly be successful and to make this a great place to work? So that question, I think, serves a couple of purposes. One is it reframes the notion of culture as underpinning everything. And that's where it deserves to be, in my view. It's the foundation stone upon which everything sits. The second thing that question does is it strategically frames culture. And again, I think that that is not, often not the case in organizations. Often values are written, again, with good intention, but they're the sort of broad rules of the game by which we like to play. Values often of themselves are not going to create a winning culture that is going to differentiate us. So my question, the key cultural attributes question, says it puts a different angle on this and it says, what does our culture need to look and feel like for us to win the game, not just play the game, to win the game? And we need to think strategically about our culture and need to have really intelligent conversations and push ourselves about what does our culture really need to look and feel like. My recommendation is that we should end up with five, maximum six key cultural attributes. Having said that, if the organization has already invested heavily into values and really wants to continue to push the values, then we can work with those. That is our envision step. The envision step is saying, what is the aspirational culture to which we want to collectively fight? That's the first step. So you don't start this process by pouring over the bones of what's wrong. You start this process by creating an aspiration, a vision for what we want to become and what we'd need to be like to become what we want to become. I don't see any other logical way to do this, Dave. I think you know, the starting point is identifying where we need to be. Mm -hmm. And it, it does astound me a little bit that so few organizations actually do this, mm. thinking strategically about their culture. I mean, you know, you can argue not to do this is an abrogation of leader responsibility. We did some research where we asked this question, if the culture of our workplace was to become as good as it realistically could, how much improvement would there be on people's performance slash productivity? Now, I asked this face-to-face, -face, as well as having done this research, and it's not uncommon for leaders to say 40%, 60%, 80%, 100%. On average, and I've done this a lot, on average, the figure of 40% would emerge across the, all the organizations that we ask, on average. Now, you know, I say, you know, I could say to leaders, shame on you. Why aren't you, you doing something about it? There's 40% capacity. Yeah by improving your culture, and it's not a trick question, you know, to become as realistically as good as it could be, mm. shame on you. What are you doing about this? So 
my argument is not to identify the aspirational culture that's necessary for us to be successful and to make this a great place to work. Not to do that is an abrogation of responsibility, and it's a logical starting point. Awesome. I like it. That's step number one. You've sold me. As you know, I'm, I'm buying. Step number two, <laughs> where, do we, where do we go next, Steve? Well, step number two flies in the face of most conventional culture assessment tools because our second step is called assess. And I've got an argument that I don't think has been put out there, but it's this. I think most culture measurement tools have got it wrong. They come with their template and say, we're going to measure you against our template and show how you compare against our template benchmarked against other organizations. That we created in the first place. Which we created. (laughs) In my view, it doesn't make sense. So what we say is, first, tell us what your culture needs to look and feel like, and then we'll identify the UGRs, the culture, in relation to those aspects of the culture that are most important to your future success. So, for example, if teamwork is a key cultural attribute or a value, then we can find out what the UGRs are in the assess phase by getting people to anonymously complete the sentence to what we call lead in sentences. So if teamwork is a cultural attribute or a value, and I'll refer to these from to as values from now on, but if teamwork is a value, then we could get people to complete the sentence around here when you need help from other work areas. Complete the sentence anonymously. If, Powerful. Um, if a desire and a need to constantly improve is a value, then we get people to complete the sentence around here when someone comes up with a new idea. If accountability is a value, then we get somebody to complete the sentence. We get people to complete the sentence around here when someone says they'll do something. Complete the sentence. Mm. That's so, simple, so this isn't exercise, it? it's very simple. Yeah. Uh, emerged from uh, two universities involved in world first research in the UGRs, but this process is what we call a UGRs stock take. We can do it online where we have text boxes where people can, can complete the sentence or we can do it manually where we've got sufficient people in the room. We'll do it anonymously on a piece of paper or an index card. And it is enormously powerful. It is incumbent on us as leaders to not only articulate our aspirational culture that's necessary for our success, but then to find out what our culture is like. And the UGR stock take enables us to do that. So that's step one and step two you've just described. You you identify the values that need to be in place for us to be successful, step one, and then you assess what are we currently like and you, you frame it in those questions, around here we, and you create a sentence that starts with around here we that links to every one of the values we've identified in step one. Makes perfect sense. And geez, you can't hide from that assess, can you? If you're around here, when people come up with new ideas finish the sentence. There's no hiding there. The senior management team is going to be looking in the mirror when they read those. This risks being confront, uh, confrontational for mm. people. And that's why it's got to be dealt with very carefully. And um, when I work with people, I make sure that there's a lot of laughs on the way through. I mean, we're gonna, this isn't about getting people. It's about getting people excited about the prospects. But during that process, there's going to be some stuff that is hard to swallow, some confrontational stuff. But the, this is where we come back to the definition. This is not collecting the facts. This is collecting people's perceptions yeah. of the way we do things around here. So we are seeing the world through other people's eyes. That's all we're doing. And it may be that their perceptions are wrong, but you know what? That's irrelevant. Are capturing their perceptions, their perceptions are their reality. And their perceptions are driving their behavior. If their perception is around here when someone comes up with a new idea, good luck, no one wants to know about it, 
Then at the next meeting, when someone says any ideas on how we can improve this, they might have an idea, but the EUGR is going to prevent them from saying anything. So we need to find out, and we need to put this on the table. We need this to stop being hidden away from everyone's view. We need to put this on, on the table because part of the assess phase is not only collecting the information, but saying what are the areas of concern and what can we do to address these areas of concern? Let's work out what we can do about this. We've got to put this on the table. All right. So we've, we're, we're talking our listeners through this five-step process that you work through, Steve. We've done step one and step two. What do we do next? Okay. Step three is called teach. Now, I can come at this phase by sharing with you an experience I had with a senior leader in a gold mining company in South Africa. I was working with Steph, my great mate in South Africa, and we're working with a gold mining company. And I stumbled across this question talking to a senior leader. I said, what is the lowest level of worker at your company who you think would benefit from being exposed to the UGR's concept? He pondered this for a while and then responded by saying, the guys above those working in the mines. He then went on to say, the guys working in the mines who are all black workers, there are various language and literacy problems. So the guys above those working in the mines. Around here, the guys in the mines don't matter. He's revealing a UGR, isn't he? Because Dave, I've asked that question a lot of times since that first time. He is the only person who has ever given me a qualified response. Everyone else has said everyone. I'm pleased to hear that. Everyone else has said everyone. So if that's the answer, then I will say, well, what? then we merely have a logistical problem. What's the best way to teach people about UGRs? Because that's what the third step is. It's saying it's incumbent on us to teach people about UGRs. Why? Because some people, many people in some instances, are subscribing to less than positive UGRs, but doing so unconsciously. In teaching them about UGRs, they realize that their personal behaviors contribute to the UGRs and the culture. It doesn't happen often, but sometimes we've had people say, this has changed my life. Wow. Because they realize that this fundamentally impacts on all of us, and it gives people hope. Some people have given, well, maybe many people have given up hope of things being any different. Knowing about UGRs gives people hope, and dare I say, it can create genuine excitement about the prospects for the future, because to the extent that there are unhappy people in the workplace, the vast majority do not want it to be that way. Mm. And teaching people about UGRs is an uplifting experience for so many people. That third step where you're teaching, and as you say, almost every organization, all but one, have chosen to expose the UGR concept right across the organization through every level. That's where it really gets serious, doesn't it? Because those first two steps you can do in a small group, it might be the senior leadership team or or the next level below the senior leadership team. But once you hit that third step, you're sending it public and you're making a, a really big investment in time and resources. Although I would say, Dave, the assess phase, which is, you know, collecting the current UGRs and then saying, what are the areas of concern? What can we do to improve things? We can involve, in fact, I'd recommend we involve staff in that as well. Yeah. You know, the process wants to encourage ownership. The process wants to demonstrate shared ownership of this stuff. So, yeah, I'd say we'd really want to get them involved from step two. And being transparent in sharing the results says something. Is There's a UGR in that as well. If we're transparent about sharing the results, warts and all, with as many people as possible. So step three, we've taught as many people throughout the organization as we possibly can about the UGR concept. What's step four, the penultimate step? 
Step four is involved. And this is the one I referred to as before because involved says let's involve as many people as possible, preferably anyone, in crafting positive UTRs that would demonstrate that the values are alive and well. So this is a fun phase where we're getting people to complete the sentence around here and to say it as though it already exists. Mm -hmm. Dave, it risks sounding a bit flippant, a bit glib, this step. Right. But I've learned over the years that when we do it, it's absolutely not the case. This is giving staff the opportunity to talk about the kind of culture that they would like to have in place, the kinds of UGRs that they would like to see in place if the values were alive and well. That's a rare opportunity that staff are given. They don't very often get the chance to talk about an aspirational culture. So I find, despite how it might sound, it is a very engaging process. And it's also safe. Leaders need to know it's a very safe process because people will come up with positive UGRs that you can't disagree with. So it's a very safe process and one that's very engaging as well. And staff can get involved in actually whittling down the list of positive UGRs to one or two and then circulating that via posters like the one I mentioned at Kmart in the Kmart store that I mentioned. Do you find that even just the process of being involved and being given the opportunity to talk and think about these things is therapeutic for organizations? I mean, they you haven't even got to the stage yet in your steps where you're actually changing anything. You're just talking about it. But do you find that that sometimes takes a huge step? Absolutely, Dave. I think you've nailed something there because the second step, the assess phase, I will say to leaders that I think part of the healing process requires appropriate venting. So we've got to allow people to get their emotions out. And while it might be difficult for leaders to swallow, it's a necessary phase where we've we've got to help people, involve people in allowing them to vent in an appropriate way and for them to see that leaders are seeing them venting. So yeah, look, we've got to put this on the table and there's a process we've got to go through which can really help engender ownership. All right. That was step four, involve, get people to create aspirational, positive UGRs that link to the values that we identified in in step one. It all makes perfect sense. Really great process. What's step number five? What's the last thing we do? And I know that you're going to tell me at some point that this is just the beginning of what we actually need to do, but it's the fifth step in your process. Well, it's the most difficult, Dave. It's called embed because all we've done now is talk up to this stage. Mm -hmm. And now we've got to work on what is it that we can do to embed this stuff? What is it literally we can do? I say there are two non-negotiable things that need to be put in place. One is our values and our positive UGRs need to be visible for people to see, visible in an appropriate way. The Kmart experience is is one. Mm -hmm. The gold mining company that we worked with in South Africa, they had massive big billboards bigger than the billboards we see on the side of freeways. Right. These massive big billboards as you drove into the gold mine. That's commitment. And before we we work with them, they had safety statistics and safety messages on each billboard as you drove in. After after they'd adopted UGRs, they had one positive UGR on each billboard, massive big letters as you drove into the gold mine. Like, how's that? I love it. So, what a, um, you must, when you have that kind of impact on an organization, you must feel so proud. It must be so professionally rewarding for you. Look, if we can make a difference, that's the reward. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, yeah, that's, that's it. So making things visible is necessary, but it's not sufficient because that still remains words. It might not be that the UTRs are the same as what's written on the words. 
So the second non-negotiable strategy is even more important. And we say that leaders in the organization must lock their talons into culture, values, UGRs, whatever term you want. We must demonstrate to people that we are 100% serious about the culture. And more than that, culture, values, UGRs must be a top three, top five priority. So how do we do that? Well, we must have standing agenda items where we are talking about our culture, values, UGRs, where we have two aspects of our, for our conversation. One is, what are we doing well? What are the opportunities for improvement? So every person in the organization, I don't care how junior, how senior you are, every two or three weeks, don't overdo this, don't underdo this, goes to a meeting and there is a standing agenda item where five minutes, 10 minutes is dedicated to how we're going, folks. What are we doing well? What are the opportunities for improvement? So a new person, five or six weeks after starting an organization, goes to a social function. Somebody there says, didn't you start a new organization recently? They say, you wouldn't believe this place. I've never come across anything like before. They're talking about culture. They've got, a, they've got standing agenda items at meetings. Look, the culture isn't 100%, but boy, are they serious about trying to improve it. I mean, it, there's no dodging it. So people know that this is an absolute priority, and that's partly articulated by the questions that leaders ask, but also having dedicated agenda item of meetings. So this is part of the framework, part of the DNA of the organization. That's embed. And that's the, the embed, the sustainability piece. As your whole process is, it's simple and clever. It Just putting it as a standing item in meetings, as you say, don't overdo it, don't underdo it. It just takes away or at least decreases the risk that it will just drop off as something that's important. Because I'm sure when you're taking the leadership team and then the whole whole organization through this process in your incredible engaging way, Steve, I'm sure it's the most important thing in their world right then and there. But the question is always, what about in a month's time, in three months' time, in six months' time? But again, just simply embedding it in the in the way that we talk, reminding of each other, having it as part of our habit, it decreases the chance that it will fall away. And it can build off itself as well, Dave. I mean, in a number of organizations, we train up UGR's champions. So over three to five days, we'll train up a team of 20 to 50. In fact, one time we did 200 UGR's champions over three to five days. And uh, we can look to the UGR's champions and they can be a a vertical, sort of a diagonal cross-section across levels of seniority, across different work areas from the organization who volunteer for this. And then we can ask them, what can we do? You help us keep this alive. So I go back to the Kmart experience. The A subset of UGR's champions takes it in turn every month or two to do a two-hour UGR session to which all people are invited with a different take, a different angle on UGR's. Wow. So we're putting pressure on people within the organization to help keep it alive. Take ownership. And they've got ownership. And like I say, try and stop the momentum once that's created. I mean, there'd be a revolt if we tried to go back to how the culture used to be. So it almost it's almost gets to a point where it's, there's a tipping point mm. where this is no longer stoppable. And that's where we need to get to. I'll give you another example. I was working with a funeral company. This sounds like a joke, but it's not a, not a joke. <laughs> working with UGRs in a funeral company. That was interesting. Great bunch of people headed up by Doris, who's a very dynamic, terrific leader, very knowledgeable, really intelligent, totally committed to culture. And I said to her, 
how's it going, Doris? She says, Steve, I know we've got this beat. And I said, do tell. She said, I heard this story secondhand. I wasn't even in the room. Two of my people are in the office. One of them pulls out a drawer on the filing cabinet as they're talking. The other one, this is staff members. The other one points at a label on one of the tabs on the filing cabinet, which is labeled management guff. <laughs> the other staff member says, do you reckon that's the right thing to do given our focus on UGRs? The other staff member says, yeah, good point. I'm going to change it. Wow. That's now, great. Doris wasn't in the room. Yeah. And this is staff keeping each other honest. Now, when you've got to that point, you know, you don't give it away, but when you've got to that point, you know you've got to beat. Staff keeping each other honest. That's the key, isn't it, once this is all said and done. Steve, I love your process. Add me to your list of fans, mate. I think that your book is terrific. <laughs> I love the simplicity and intelligence of your process, and I love the way you talk about it with, with such knowledge and passion. You've obviously got a heap of experience doing this, but you still really care about it, mate. I'm, I'm super impressed. I think it's a great process. Now, mate, there is a risk for you, though, because you've made it so clear and so easy in your book People will think they can do this for themselves. I'm sure people who are listening to this right now are thinking, I'm going to do this myself in my organization. You're going to do yourself out of a job. <laughs> and look, and that's part of the reason we put this out there is that it's now in the public domain and um, there's a lot of skilled people out there who, you know, I think of uh, some of the organizations I've dealt with in the past who have terrific internal expertise to run workshops and what have you. And, you know, they're more than more than free to, to use the intellectual property that's out there. But, you know, I, I'd also caution because um, my approach is to make this as much fun as possible. And I also think there's a little extra value in a third party, not coming from within, being able to broach this stuff. Often the profit can't come from within. And there's always going to be some baggage, potentially some baggage that whatever internal person does or whatever their skills. So look, Go out, use the stuff for sure. And there's a heap more at the website as well, which is UGRs.net. But just be cautious in your approach because it is potentially very confronting and also be cautious in your approach to make it a fun experience while hitting people between the eyes because that's what UGRs does. All right, Steve, you have been so generous with your time, so generous with the knowledge that you've shared, but you're not off the hook yet. I have four really quick questions to finish up with. I always ask my guests the same four questions. Are you ready? I'm not forewarned of these, so I don't no, know what's coming you here. You don't. Today, well, you obviously don't listen to my away. podcast, mate. You've done no homework. <laughs> All right, Steve. Now, this is so we can learn a little bit more about you, the real Steve Simpson. Tell me about the Saturday night you most look forward to, a big party with lots of people you know, or a, an intimate dinner with your closest friends. Ah, uh, the second one. Right. Good. That was a quick Absolutely. answer. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. What about this one? Are you more likely to get bogged down in the detail or caught daydreaming? Depending on the topic, if it's culture-related stuff, the former. If it's, in inverted commas, homework that I should be doing, the latter. Caught day. <laughs> You're just going to daydream it away. Are you a details man or a big picture man? Look, a bit of both, I think. You know, I, I like to see the details, mm. but I also, I think can think big picture as well. So, yeah, I'll, I'll put two bob each way. Oh, sitting on the fence. I'll, I'll let you off, Steve. You, you could be legitimately in the center there. <laughs> or right, what about this one? Are you a slave to rational thought or do you make decisions based on emotion? You know, I was listening to someone speak the other day on this whole issue of sales and buying. 
And this person made so much sense that I'll in no way be able to give them credit by reframing the way that they did. But as the message that I got from it was we might think we are rational buyers, but that is absolute rubbish. <laughs> we all buy on emotion. Right. And if I listen to this guy correctly, he was saying we justify rationally after the event. Interesting. You know, a couple of and my I guests that's have, true. have given me a really similar answer to that. They've tricked themselves into thinking they're rational, but really <laughs> they're making decisions based on emotion and then they justify it later. In fact, I think my most recent guest, Simon Dowling, said exactly that. So good pickup, Steve. I like that. All right. <laughs> Last question, mate, and then you're off the hook. You're going on a road trip. Do you like to plan your route in advance, book the hotels and know exactly where you're going, or do you just get in the car and drive? I love exploring. That's what I love about UTOs, what I love about my work and probably yours too, Dave. You never know what the next phone call is going to be. You never know what the next job is going to be, the next client's going to be. And I love the unknown. And the same with um, exploring new places. I love exploring and discovering places for myself. That's part of the excitement of life, I think. Great answer, Steve. Steve Simpson, thank you so much for joining me on the Team Guru podcast. It's been a pleasure, Dave. And that was Steve Simpson. You'll have noticed through our conversation that I am a real fan. I love the intelligence, the simplicity, and the relevance of the work he does with UGRs. And I really enjoyed his book. You may have got that impression through the chat as well. Subtle, wasn't I? It's a business fable of the quality that someone like Robin Sharma or Patrick Lencioni would be proud of. Of course, I'll share the lessons I took from my chat with Steve, as well as a few links to where you can find him and his book. It's all on the Team Guru website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. You can track me down on Twitter, Facebook, email, or on LinkedIn. And I'll be back soon for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.